0: Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Meriwether and Tharp, your source for Georgia divorce. Find them online at theatlantadivorceteam.com. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. All right, coming up in just a couple of minutes, this is when I'm actually one of my favorite days of the offseason. It's really kind of a reminder that there's not a whole lot of offseason left. We're actually getting towards the start of the upcoming year when it comes to uh, one of the things that we get a chance to talk about today, which Bud Elliott, 24-7 Sports, writes a piece called the Blue Chip Ratio. We've talked about this probably every year since we've been doing Dog Nation Daily. It's Bud's belief of the level of recruiting success that a team needs to kind of cross over the threshold of being able to win the national championship. And in light of what Georgia did a year ago and kind of where it ranks right now, this is obviously a pretty interesting topic for dog fans and so i think it leads us to a probably interesting question an interesting point as it relates to uga and we'll do uh, all of that coming up in just a couple of minutes before that though i want to talk about the season opening game against oregon for right now because there's a guy cbs sports chip patterson i think he's a pretty interesting writer and he has a list out right now of what he calls college football's mystery teams the teams in which it seems to be there's some disagreement and seems to be there's some intrigue about exactly how good or not certain teams are going to be. And one of the teams that, that Chip had most prominently mentioned on his list of so-called mystery teams in college football is the Oregon Ducks. That's who Georgia plays, obviously, week one, Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We're getting ready for our Dog Nation Duck Hunt tailgate. We're excited about that, but we're also just really intrigued by the game. It's always, I believe, much more fun when Georgia plays a team like this or Clemson last year or... You know, other examples like going to go back to North Carolina back in the 2016 season, when you have that week one game against a good, interesting power five non-conference opponent, it just makes the offseason chatter so much more fun than if you're playing McNeese State or, or someone like that, that just knowing you begin the season with a game that matters just makes the the summertime chatter Around college football, all the more fun, and we are seeing an example of that when it comes to Georgia, Oregon right now. Oregon probably is truly a bit of an unknown, certainly in comparison to who Georgia was playing a year ago. Clemson, I think most Georgia fans felt like they had a pretty good handle on what Clemson was. It turns out, DJ Uiunglale probably wasn't quite as good at quarterback last year as we thought he would be, and you know, Clemson ended up dealing with some defensive injuries. But for the most part, a lot of what we thought we knew about Clemson turned out to kind of be true whereas when it comes to the preseason conversation as it relates to Oregon, there certainly hasn't been much of what I would say unanimous consensus among UGA fans about how good Oregon is. I've told you before, I actually expect Georgia to win pretty convincingly against Oregon there uh, week one, but there are other people who have said, hey, the Ducks could be somewhat dangerous for UGA. And you know, in some of the other ways in which you see Oregon discussed, you also see a little bit of a spread in terms of some teams. Some folks thinking they'll be very good. Some folks think they'll not quite so be so good. And all of this is, of course, relevant in terms of how much of a challenge they provide for UGA when these two teams kick it off on September third. So, with that in mind, let me read to you a little bit here of what Chip Patterson says about Oregon. And as I said before, we'll think about all of this through the lens of what exactly will Georgia see from the Ducks in Dan Lanning's first game when they travel 3,000 miles away to show up here in Atlanta? Well, this is what Chip Patterson says about that, and he actually kind of compares them uh, to another team in the Pac-12 that also has some mystery around it, that being USC. So let me read this from Chip Patterson. It's a little bit long, but I want to give you the full context here. He says, like USC, Oregon has a first-year coach and a transfer quarterback with power five starting experience. Unlike USC, The Ducks' new hire has never been a head coach and doesn't have four conference titles and an uh, uh, 84.6% winning percentage. So the comparison there between Dan Lanning and Lincoln Riley, who's taking over for the Trojans. Yet, Chip Patterson says, look at the preseason rankings, and Oregon has about the same ceiling and floor as the Trojans, which speaks to the health of the program that Dan Lanning is taking over for his first head coaching gig. Oregon has cracked the top 10 of some of the preseason rankings while also falling closer to the edge of the top 20. That kind of disparity mostly comes from questions as to whether the offense will be dynamic with quarterback Bo Nix and plenty of turnover at the skill positions because defensively Oregon has one of the best linebacking corps in the country and enough talent in the trenches to have an edge against nearly every conference foe on its schedule that being Chip Patterson. From CBSports.com. So he kind of lays out a lot of interesting stuff there, that which is that hey, when playing conference foes, Oregon probably is going to have an edge over just about everybody. And really, in terms of the preseason projections, that Oregon actually kind of measures out pretty equally to a USC team that's gotten all kinds of chatter. Lincoln Riley shows up there. Jordan Addison transfers in, Caleb Williams transfers in, all kinds of buzz, all kinds of discussion. Their spring game was on ESPN, everything else that kind of goes along with that. However, ultimately, that Oregon and USC are actually probably somewhat equal teams, teams that might slip into the top 10 or might be lucky to make the top 20, just sort of based on how the season plays out. So that's sort of an interesting look at Oregon there overall. In fact, this is a little bit like a conversation we were having in our comment section the other day. I do what's called an R.S. Andrews cool down after every show. R.S. Andrews, one of our great sponsors, air conditioning, heating, plumbing and electric, by the way. Uh, And they present our cool down on video where I just sort of read comments and just sort of chat back and forth with people. And the other day, some of our YouTube commenters were talking about Oregon and its recruiting rankings. We're actually going to look at Oregon in this respect coming up in a couple of minutes later on in the show. But I have to admit being somewhat surprised to learn that Oregon, according to like 24-7 sports and some of these places that rank this, actually kind of is right around the top 10 when it comes to the overall talent level in the program i'm a little bit surprised to hear that just because when you think about way out west even though oregon kind of shows up as a finalist for a lot of big time recruits ultimately how many of these big recruiting battles does it ultimately win to me it seems like maybe not all that many but actually when it comes to like where the oregon talent is rated it's actually a little higher than than i kind of thought it was i think a lot of that is on defense one of the issues that Mario Cristobal had, the now Miami coach when his Oregon head coach, they just had a hard time finding a dynamic offense. And when you sort of close your eyes and picture Oregon, the team coming in to play Georgia week one, you almost think back to the Marcus Mariota days or the Chip Kelly days or even when Mark Helfrich was either head coach or offensive coordinator there. This sort of dynamic offense that kind of brought that fastball notion of, of read option and all that kind of stuff into college football. But that's really not what Oregon has been in recent years. A lot of what the Ducks were doing when Crystal Ball was head coach was a little bit like what Georgia was doing. And much the same way that Georgia brought in Todd Monk in his way of trying to sort of resurrect some offense, at one point in time, Chris did that with Joe Moorhead. You remember him, the former Mississippi State head coach? Went up there, became offensive coordinator, and the results were you know, kind of mixed. That, that Oregon actually hasn't been a, a great offensive team. So part of the mystery and the intrigue around the Ducks is, We know what they have defensively, Noah Sewell and others, even what they've lost off last year's defense. You're still talking about a pretty talented group overall. But offensively, there is some, you know, intrigue here. There are some questions. There is, to use Chip Patterson's word, a little bit of mystery about how good they'll be. And that's one of the things that I think for some makes the Ducks' season long projection difficult to predict. And maybe for others a little bit more difficult to decide what exactly how close can they keep it against Georgia there to begin the season. And for what it's worth, when Kirby Smart has talked about the Ducks already, he has echoed a similar sentiment. He used the word awkward. You remember that when he says, "Hey, in trying to prepare and figure out what they're going to do, um, there are, you know, some mysteries even for Smart here about exactly what's Oregon what Oregon's going to be." And in fact, if this is what he said about Oregon going back a little earlier this spring, take a listen to Kirby here.
1: We looked at them in the spring and kind of studied those guys. It makes it awkward, you know, the new head coach. You can take the the, you know, the film and the things you are really looking more at who the players are than anything um very familiar with dan lanning very familiar with a lot of guys on the staff his offensive coordinator was at auburn and also at fsu so we looked at those guys but got a lot of respect for dan and what he did for our program and know he'll do a really good job uh there at oregon
0: so let me see if i can kind of bottom line this a little bit by the way the offensive guy that kirby's mentioning there's kenny dillingham who's now the uh, offensive coordinator there for the ducks when it comes to the season-long projection for oregon i'm like a lot of people and jip patterson references i don't really know how good they'll be could be top 10, could be top 20, you know, could be something in between. I don't really know what their season-long projection is, but I'm also not all that concerned with how they fare in the Pac-12 because ultimately, even if they win the league, history would suggest they're not a playoff team anyway. So there's not a whole lot of concern for me in terms of what Oregon does once it, get, once it gets into Pac-12 play. I am, like all of you, though, quite interested in what Oregon does week one against Georgia. And while Chip Patterson, even Kirby Smart, may be right to say – there's some awkward prep or some mystery into exactly how good they'll be I do think for that season opening game you can lean into what you do know you may not know much about Oregon but you know plenty about Georgia what I feel like I know about Georgia is enough to give me confidence to make my prediction there for that game We know that Georgia is the reigning national champion. We know that it's playing in its home state. Uh, Conversely, we know that Dan Lanning's making his coaching debut, and he's traveling 3,000 miles away. My expectation is those tasks will be as difficult as they sound. And yes, Oregon has certainly plenty of talent and far more than most of the teams that it plays in the Pac-12, but on September 3rd, it's not playing a Pac-12 team. On September 3rd, it's playing the Georgia Bulldogs, and for all the talent Oregon has, especially on the defensive side of the ball, Georgia just simply has more. So maybe Dan Lanning does have a surprisingly good first season. Maybe he sort of exceeds the average expectations for his team and kind of pushes those top-end projections. Maybe he does that, but I don't expect that success to come week one against UGA. It's a fascinating game. It's a fun thing to talk about here in the preseason, and there is, admittedly, a little bit of mystery around Oregon but not enough mystery to ever seriously believe this game week one has a chance to be close. Ducks are a fun team, but they should be in for a long day against the dogs to start things off. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. We're presented by Mary Weather and Tharp today, and we're glad to have you with us. No matter how you get to us, live on video starting at 9:45, first and fifteen, DogNation.com, and the Dog Nation app. 10 a.m. after that, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Radio Noon, Athens Sports Radio 960, The Ref, and all kinds of ways to get in touch with the podcast and everything else. We're just happy, happy, happy that you are here today. And we certainly have a big thanks to our friends at Meriwether and Tharp who make all this possible. I had a great lunch last week with Bob Tharp. And one of the things that Bob was telling me, I thought this was kind of an amazing uh, thing, he said, you know, B.A., you wouldn't realize over the course of all the years of doing this you know, and obviously Mary Weather and Tharp is your source for Georgia divorce. That's the business they're in, helping folks go through a divorce. And he said, you know, through all the years of doing this, you wouldn't believe the marriages we've had the chance to save. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to hear. And he said that one of those other partners at one point in time was like walking around one day and had somebody come up, you know, give him a big hug and say, you know, thank you for helping save our marriage. Thank you for doing that. And I think that's a great story because obviously it sort of speaks to the heart that the folks have at Mary Weather and Tharp for what they're doing, that, They're trying to help people have happier lives, more enjoyable lives, and that means if your marriage can be saved, well, they're going to try to talk to you about maybe how you can do that. But in some cases, and this is just sort of the reality of life, and this has to be confronted. In some cases, marriages can't be saved. In some cases, marriages, you know, have just come to an end, and that's just it's an unfortunate part of life, but it is a real part of life for many people that the relationship is just severed beyond repair. Well, that be the case, and it's also good to know Merryweather and Tharp because. Being your source for Georgia divorce means they understand all the intricacies of the law and how all of that can be leveraged to your benefit because that's what it's all about here, right? You want to set yourself up for a better financial future, for a strong relational future as it comes to your kids and everything else, and just sort of a clear, happy mind as you move towards the uh, next season of your life. And Meriwether and Tharp can kind of walk you through all of that. And so much of this begins with that sort of free initial consultation with one of their attorneys. You can speak on the phone, sort of tell your story. Sometimes it's just kind of nice to have someone to listen to your story. And then beyond that, you make the decision to hire Meriwether and Tharp. Let them do for you what they've done for thousands of people across our state uh, before, which is um, handling your divorce situation for you. So your source for Georgia divorce is Meriwether and Tharp. You can find them online at com. That's the com. All right, coming up in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk to Terrence Edwards, and it's going to be a great conversation because yesterday I was able to have a great conversation with Terrence Edwards. I was able to, on the phone, tell him. That he's going to be enshrined in the inaugural class of the Georgia High School Football Hall of Fame. And that was one of those special moments for me to, to celebrate the great career for a guy that I have tremendous respect for, both on and off the field. It was a great experience. And in just the sort of the first day after coming to this realization, we'll have a chance to talk to Terrence about this. Well, it's still fresh here coming up in a couple moments. I'm really excited about that. So we'll do that then. Before that, though, let's go around the doghouse and something else I'm excited about for a completely different reason is a story that comes out each and every year it's a writer for 24 7 sports bud elliott i have respect for bud i think he's a good writer i think he's a sharp football mind and he comes out with what he calls the blue chip ratio now in so many words this is what the blue chip ratio is is basically establishing the threshold for who can and who cannot win the national championship and he's been doing this i think since 2013 for a long time he's been doing this longer than we've been doing dog nation daily so uh quite some time now and basically the 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 sort of hypothesis, if you will, behind the blue chip ratio is, is if you are a team that has not recruited more four and five star players than lesser recruits over the previous four year period, then you are not going to be able to win the national championship. That every team that has won the national title, since Bud's been doing this, and probably every team prior to that there as well, but at least since Bud's been tracking this, has had more than 50% of its roster acquired over the course of the previous four years. That were either four or five star recruits, and what's interesting about what Bud's been tracking about this lately is how, at the top end of all of this, the the numbers continue to go up. For instance, when Kirby Smart was first hired at Georgia, the only team that had a blue chip ratio of seventy five percent or higher was Alabama, and for a good number of years, you know, that had kind of been true. And yet, when Kirby got here to Georgia, all of a sudden, Georgia started acquiring this talent, you know, in just hand over fist, just pulling it all in. And what you saw from Georgia on a list like this of kind of the most talented teams in college football, those that had uh, kind of the threshold of achievement necessary to win the national championship, you saw Georgia climbing up this list higher and higher and higher. The ratio of former elite recruits on the roster was going up and up and up. And I've admitted to this, uh, this to you before that there was an element of this that kind of became kind of discouraging in one respect that as georgia was kind of uh, acquiring all this talent had you told me back in 2016 2017 that one day Georgia would have more than three quarters of its roster being former elite recruits former blue chip recruits four and five star guys i've admitted to you in the past that the version of me that existed in 2015 2016 when kirby smart was first hired would have said Well, gosh, I guess Georgia's been dominating the national championship landscape because Alabama's had, you know, kind of three quarters of its roster being former blue chip recruits and, 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 you know, look how many championships they've won. If Georgia's recruiting at the same level, then Georgia's probably going to be collecting all these national championships as well. And up until last year, Georgia hadn't even won a national championship yet. And like the thing that would have been almost inconceivable to me back then when Georgia was beginning to collect all this talent was that as Georgia's ratio of former elite recruits was rising the number of players who were former four and five star guys the Alabama number would keep going up too and the number for Ohio State would kind of rise there as well it's really kind of amazing as Georgia over the course of the smart years has gotten more and more talented seemingly with each and every year somehow Alabama hasn't gotten less talented somehow Alabama has found a way to keep finding elite recruits themselves in fact their number sort of keeps going up there too and Ohio State not too far behind on that in fact for some context on this let me show you the uh, list as compiled by Bud Elliott 24-7 sports of the blue chip ratio that Georgia 77 percent that's the that's the uh, percentage of players in the roster acquired over the course of the last four years out of high school who were former four and five star recruits. That's a huge total. That's an amazing total. It's the kind of thing that really no one was doing other than Alabama before Kirby Smart got here. But as Georgia has acquired more and more talent, Alabama's done the same thing. Alabama's blue chip ratio for the upcoming season is eighty-nine percent. Eighty-nine percent of its roster of guys they recruited out of high school. Are either four or five star recruits. Ohio State's also ahead of Georgia there as well at eighty percent. Now here's what we know. Now there you, you see if you're watching a video, you see the rest of the list, and maybe at some point in time we'll talk about the rest of this list. But for now, I I, uh, I just want to kind of focus on the top three. So Georgia's got seventy seven percent of its roster as as blue chip recruits. They were a little slightly higher last year. They won the national championship, but at seventy seven percent this year, they are clearly on the short list of teams that could win the title but if they play against an Ohio State, if they play against an Alabama, they will not be the most talented team on the field, at least on the basis of this one metric. That they are in a category, and really are one of the only three teams in the category of three quarters of its roster or better, former blue chip recruits, but not the very highest overall. That's not what they are. So what do you do about that? What do you do with the fact that hey, you have kind of lapped the field when it comes to most of your competition, way more talent than Florida, uh, Florida. way more talent than Tennessee, way more talent than certainly every other team in the SEC East, your longtime rival Auburn, way more talent than they have, but no better than equal when it comes to talent compared to Ohio State, talent compared to Alabama. We can bring that graphic down off, off, off the screen now. Like, What do you do about all of this? Well, one line of thought would seem to be, Well, that means you're going to go out and get the very best quarterback. If you've got two teams that are essentially made up of all future NFL players, then that game is going to look like what the game looks like in the NFL where quarterback play really matters. And Certainly to one respect, that seems like it makes some sense. I mean, you look at the times which Alabama has lost. They've lost to great quarterbacks in many cases, to Joe Burrow in 2019 to Trevor Lawrence or Deshaun Watson, a pair of Clemson quarterbacks in 2016 and 2018, that you have seen Alabama and its great talent upended by uh, great quarterbacks from time to time. But here's the thing about a generational talent quarterback. By definition, you're not going to have one every single year. For instance, last year in college football, I don't know that we had a generational talent quarterback, at least one that could have beaten Alabama. I mean, maybe you could say that Bryce Young in Alabama was a version of that. But there's only one quarterback last year taken in the first round. It's Kenny Pickett. And it just so happens that maybe last year was one of those examples where if it takes a generational talent quarterback to beat Alabama, well, last season there may not have been a generational talent at quarterback in the country anywhere available to go out there and uh, get that done. So while a generational talent at quarterback can be a little bit of a silver bullet, it's not the kind of renewable resource that you can guarantee to have access to each and every year it's almost like if you're Georgia, while you'd love to have the great quarterback, maybe eventually Georgia will have one. It's almost like if you want to have that year-to-year chance of doing battle with a team that has just as much talent as you do, if not slightly more based on that percentage, it's almost like you have to lean on something else. And this is where I think you start to get a pretty good picture of what actually led Georgia to its national championship last season. That when it mattered, Georgia was just tougher. Georgia was maybe slightly less talented than Alabama, but they were a little bit tougher, especially when it mattered. Ohio State may have had more talent, especially at some of the sexy skill positions, but Ohio State didn't even make the playoff. They got shoved around by Michigan, and they watched the playoff on TV because teams like Georgia were just a little bit tougher. I was thinking about that the other day because uh, Dan Jackson, the Georgia safety, who's kind of an interesting story because he's been a walk-on and kind of a guy that sort of accomplished a lot, but you know, he was being interviewed in one of those like caption videos that Georgia shares on its social media. And that idea of toughness, that idea of just being tougher than your opponent, even if that guy is sort of from a talent standpoint, rated ahead of you. That's one of the things that Dan Jackson said, I want people to think of me that way. And I think as Georgia kind of highlights that about Jackson, I think it also becomes a vantage point from which we view the Georgia program. It's just sort of tougher than its competition. In fact, let me let you hear the audio of the video that Georgia shared of Dan Jackson as kind of what he sort of sees in himself and maybe as a sort of reflection of how Georgia wants to have its program be seen there as well. This is the Georgia safety, the walk on Dan Jackson. I'd probably say toughness best describes me. You know, playing through injuries growing up, you know, just never giving up. Coming here, walking onto the team, had to push myself just to get on the field. So I'd probably say toughness. So obviously being tough is a huge part of football. You can't go out there and be soft. It varies from the workouts that we do, the practices. All of it takes toughness. Dan Jackson says, hey, you can't go out there and be soft playing football. If you want to think about me, think about being tough. And if George is highlighting that video – clearly that's the way it wants to be thought of itself. And I think that does explain a lot about Georgia's national championship a year ago. I think it also kind of speaks to what Georgia's recipe for the future is going to be. If Georgia has the kind of season it wants, it's going to play 15 games this upcoming year. And most of those 15 games will be won by simply overwhelming the opponent because you just have way more talent than they do. And honestly, Sometimes it's just as simple as that. Even week one against Oregon, for as talented as Oregon is, Georgia will have more talent on the field that day, measurably speaking. Most of the games that Georgia plays will be very much like that, where they just simply overwhelm the opponent with size and speed and everything else. But for the games that matter most, Georgia actually won't be the most talented team on the field. For all of its recruiting success, teams like Ohio State and Alabama, at least measurably, will be viewed as more talented. So what do you do in that moment? Well, I've told you before, I believe there is a Kirby doctrine. I believe there is an idea with which Kirby Smart guides himself as he leads this Georgia program. The Kirby doctrine, we've said before, is taking talent, you have to have that, and making that talent tougher. That is what the Kirby doctrine is all about. If you want to be talented, but you don't want to be tough, Georgia may not be for you. If you're tough, but not talented, also, you may be happier playing somewhere else because Georgia needs sort of a higher threshold of achievement than that. It's talented players who want to be tough. It's talented players who just kind of have that intrinsic drive to be tough. Talented players getting tougher. That's the explanation for how Georgia won the national championship a year ago in a blue chip world in which they still kind of look up at Ohio State and Alabama as teams that have more of the kind of blue chip style recruits. Finding a way to be tougher than those players when these two teams play, if they do play, or a chance at Ohio State, that. Kirby doctrines has worked before. It may be the recipe for success here again in 2022, there as well. That is around the doghouse, and this is Dog Nation Daily presented by Meriwether and Tharp. we got a lot of SEC stuff to get into a little bit later on, uh, and including the way in which. Some of the news coming out of the Big 12 may give us a little bit of insight into the SEC's future. We'll touch on that before we're all said and done. We will celebrate a lot of the former UGA guys who were enshrined in the Georgia High School Football Hall of Fame. Looking forward to doing that. But specifically now, celebrating with a guy that we are certainly very proud to see included among this group. And I had a chance to talk to him about this yesterday. And now we'll talk about it publicly for now. Terrence Edwards on his way to the Hall of Fame. Joining us right now here on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp. Hope you enjoy it. From Athens and across the SEC or wherever the recruiting trail may lead, here's a dognation.com insider. You know, it was a great moment for me yesterday to be able to call Terrence on the phone and tell him that, and a very deserving honor, of course, but nonetheless, it's still great to be able to hear this, and for me, great to be able to say it the inaugural class of the Georgia High School Football Hall of Fame honoring guys for what they did while playing the high school sport here in the state of Georgia. Terrence is going to be a part of that very first class. First of all, Terrence, uh, congratulations, and please know what an honor it was for me to be able to tell you about this yesterday. It was just a really cool and special moment, and I'm so proud for you, but also so happy that the Hall of Fame is honoring guys appropriately who had just great you know, careers, in your case, there at Washington County. This is a uh, great thing to be able to be a part of, and uh, certainly congratulations to see your name there on that list.
1: Oh, I appreciate it. I, it was a uh, honor when you called, and I really appreciate that they giving you that, that pleasure to call me uh, and let me know. Uh. So it's an honor. I mean, if you just look at the list of guys, man, it's a lot of guys on there I looked up to uh I looked at the highs cuz we played similar roles. Yeah. Uh I want to be Tyler Ward growing up cuz I was a quarterback in high school and I looked at his highlights before every game. So I want to be Tyler Ward. Uh so it's a great group of guys on that. Be on the first ballot, man. That means a lot for me and my family. Uh also with uh my brother from another mother, Keio Spites, right. who's on the same high school football team. So, uh, you know, when I, when I spoke to him about it and, uh, our head coach, Rick Thompson, it, it is a joyful occasion for the Washington County, uh, program. And uh, everyone knows my brother's the head coach at our program now. So it's a, it's a great honor and privilege to go into the inaugural first ballot Georgia High School uh, Hall of Fame. And we all know what type of talent we
0: have in this state. When it was, you mentioned this a moment ago, I think it's interesting, guys like Charlie Ward and others. You know, like in the 90s, when you and I were kind of growing up, you didn't have huddle the way you do now. You didn't have like some of the YouTube stuff the way that you do now. How aware were you of other great players in Charlie's case that came before you, or maybe other guys are kind of playing, you know, at, at a similar time as you? Did you drive around? Did you go watch games back then? Uh, did you get a chance to see, whether it be maybe VHS tapes back then? How many, like, great Georgia players from the state of Georgia did you get a chance to watch as you were either growing into your own high school career or while you were playing high school? How aware were you of what was happening around you back then?
1: Uh, I was aware only because of VHS. Uh, like you said, there wasn't no huddle. There wasn't internet to really Google or YouTube. So it, it all came on, uh, from VHS. And with Charlie Ward, my high school coach at played at Florida State, so he had their highlight tape yeah. uh, for child award years. So we watched – I watched him every Thursday and Friday trying to emulate him on the field, and that's where I kind of got my game from. And people don't know I was strictly a quarterback in high school. Didn't play receiver not one game until I got to Georgia. So I was a strictly a quarterback my whole life. So all the stuff that I learned is, is just from watching uh, VSH tapes. Uh, back when I was coming
0: up and I know that in Charlie's case too I mean he had a very interesting athletic career in that he was one of the really special college football players in the 90s but actually his professional careers with the New York Knicks his point guard mean, he was a true two-sport star and I know how much you love the game of basketball would probably say it may have even been your first love so the idea that Charlie was also so good at both sports I'm imagining for you that had to be sort of an extra level of coolness in terms of how you kind of viewed him back at that time
1: oh most definitely you know uh I saw a guy that his first love, just like mine, and still my first love. I, told, I tell people all the time about change. I love playing football, but basketball was, was it for me. I played football early on growing up because I was good at it, but I played basketball because I loved it. Then I, you know, football is just the sport that I grav, gravitated to and continue to play. But a lot of people who's listening right now probably don't remember. I did play basketball. At the Georgia program as well. Uh, in, in 99, Coach Jersel was the coach. So I played basketball at Georgia as well. So just from his uh, high school career, is kind of who I kind of emulated my game and i thought i was Tyler Ward war growing up his moves throwing the football and being a best a two-way basketball player as well
0: so i'm curious as well you mentioned the fact that you're you know obviously a quarterback and you put up big numbers and you kind of talked about how like you kind of envisioned, hey maybe we'd be the nebraska quarterback maybe sort of be like a tommy Frazier style player like how much fun is it for you to kind of think back on that high school career because obviously when we talk to you here now we sort of talked to you from the vantage point of what you did in college. You were a great receiver, George, and you kind of coach up wide receivers now. And that's something that's kind of a big part of the way we think about you now. But that's very different than the way you would have been thought of kind of back then. How much fun is it for you to, to kind of consider that your high school life as a player, the thing you're kind of being honored for right now, is really very different than what your college and professional profile is? ended up being, it's almost like you've had sort of two different lives in the sport of football as a very exciting quarterback and then a very polished wide receiver. Two different kind of positions at different stages of your life you kind of thrived in. Probably really fun to think about how different things used to be for you.
1: Most definitely. I I think about it all the time. If I was playing in today's game, I would have never moved to receiver with the zone reads and the RPOs and how uh, quarterbacks now do as kind of you know the more athletic guys yeah. that who could throw the football. And if anybody's watched me train, uh, you'd see that I throw the football around with those guys. And a lot of people like, Did you play quarterback at some time? So they could see the, the quarterback in me. I, I am a quarterback and point guard at heart. And I just played receiver because at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of six feet. When I was coming out, 165 pounds, quarterback playing in the SEC. And I you knew I was very athletic. And I saw exactly what Hines just did for his training positioning from quarterback to receiver, and I knew the way Coach Dunn was going to use me. So that's kind of the way I got to quarterback, at, I mean receiver at Georgia. Um, but I'm, I'm still a quarterback at, her, at heart. I'm a point guard at heart. So kind of that, I think that's where my leadership ability comes from, from being those two guys that has to exhibit the leadership for, to run a team uh, but if people don't know, I mean, if you could you could Google. Now I was, I think I was one hell of a quarterback yeah, back then.
0: No doubt, no doubt at all. Uh, last thing for you on this topic, then we'll talk about something else. What I also loved about you know being able to discuss this with you yesterday was genuinely. I think you were just as excited that Takio Spikes made it as you were that you made it, that you were just as proud for your teammate. You called him your brother from another mother a moment ago. But in talking to you yesterday, I can say that you were just as enthusiastic about Takio being there as you were yourself. And it is kind of a cool deal to think that, you know, in the very first ever class, a pair of Washington County teammates are on there together. I don't know how many other teammates made it. I'm pretty sure James Brooks, Ron Simmons. Uh, two teammates from Warner Robbins that are both in there, but not an easy thing to do to have two guys from the same team uh, make the uh, Hall of Fame in the same year, but that's obviously what uh, you and Takiyo get a chance to do, which is great.
1: Yes, I looked at the list, and, and James Brooks as well, the Warner Robbins Warner and Paris as well with teammates, and Takiyo and I was teammates in high school, but it's a great accomplishment for our, our small town there in middle Georgia, and a great accomplishment for Rick Tumblr, our head uh, coach back then, and he was just as excited as we were. And I mean, it's a testament to the work that he instilled in us and the work we did. And, and it goes to all teammates as well. I, I know Katil would say the exact same thing. We, we had some great teams down there in Washington County from a uh, Robert senior year in, in 92, 93 to my last year in 97, 98. We, I would put those teams up against anybody, even current teams right now, yeah. the talent that we have. So. Uh, you know, this we didn't do this alone. We had teammates to help us. And uh, this here is a, a representation of all the hard work that we as Golden Hawks put in, not just to kill and I.
0: Well, I hate to tell you this. Obviously, on the football field, your tandem of yourself and Takio Spikes certainly holds its own against anybody, James Brooks, Ron Simmons included. But the one thing the Warner Robbins demons duo does have going for it is Ron Simmons did become WCW world champion. So that's like the one thing that you and Takio Spikes cannot rival in that particular case is that Ron Simmons did eventually hold the gold there in the wrestling ring. Oh, most
1: definitely. I've watched him growing up and didn't know anything about his football career. Uh, knew more of him from being a wrestler so uh, uh, that's something that he definitely have over i think Kikio could have transitioned to a wrestler as well but he still probably holds the record for the thickest neck in college football and high school football so but that was uh something that i knew about from being from middle georgia and then him transitioning to his wrestling career
0: yeah i think you may be right about that i want to shift gears to this we're talking about the oregon game a moment ago, and. You know, Terrence, I just think it's so much fun for Georgia fans. I'm assuming for players and coaches too. That when you're getting ready for that season opener, actually maybe more so for the players and the coaches. Coaches may may be a little stressed out, but when you're playing that sort of big name brand opponent, the kind of team that folks have been watching on TV around here for a long time. I just think it makes the prep more fun. Thinking about what the ducks bring to the table, trying to figure out how good's Bo Nix going to be in that offense. Does Bo Nix even hold off Ty Thompson and maintain his status as the starting quarterback? And kind of all the other stuff there. Dan Landing in his first game. When you're playing a team like this, doesn't it make that off season go by a little quicker? And doesn't it make thinking ahead to the start of the season all the more fun?
1: I think so. I think it's uh, it brand a little inter, interesting dynamic playing a team that we normally don't play. I mean, we we. Typically, I stayed in the south when I played, but now we get opportunity to play Notre Dame, and if, and I'm glad I had opportunity to go to Notre Dame up there. That's a great experience, and now we get to play Oregon, who brings a, a a different type of uh atmosphere because I think every student athlete that plays football kind of admires Oregon because of their uniforms. All these kids love gear, and they got twelve thousand gear combination now. Dan Lanning, who uh, beloved down here at University of Georgia. Now he takes over as the head coach. And ironically, he gets to play the school that he just helped win a national championship. So, uh, it, it's fun. I think schools, I think these kids, one for one, they're going to ready to beat Coach Land and two, get opportunities to, to play against Oregon Ducks. And it's the Nike capital of the world. So there's a lot of factors that these kids are preparing for. And you could put, you know, your, your bullet board material, whatever mm-hmm. that may be. And, uh, you know, it, it's just not your typical. Beginning of the season, Cupcake. This, this is a legitimate Power 5 school that we don't get to play there often.
0: And then the uh, last thing for you, we were talking a moment ago about kind of where programs are ranked in terms of their overall, overall talent. No surprise that Georgia's going to near the top on that, along with teams like Alabama and Ohio State. But you also get the sense, Terrence, that in future years – Some of this stuff might change a little bit. You know, we saw the big recruiting breakthrough for Texas A&M last year. They've been a good recruiting program before, but they took it to a higher level last season. Obviously, Miami seems like they're in the midst of doing that right now. Uh, Texas kind of taking their recruiting to a different level there, too. Do you get the sense that as NIL kind of has its influence on college football that we might eventually see more parity and that teams like Alabama and Georgia, they may still get the most talent, but maybe not to the same level they've been doing that in the past? Do you think we could be heading for more balance in the recruiting rankings in future years as NIL gets a better sort of toehold into the sport?
1: Personally, I I hope so. I, I just I don't like when certain teams just get all the, the best players, all the high ranking kids. I, I would like to for it to be spread out among college football. I love college football, and I just. Uh, so I want Georgia to be there every year. I want us to win the national championship every year, but I also want there to be different teams in the college football playoff. I just don't want to be Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia every year. That just, for me, because I love college football so much, I want to see different teams. I want to see Georgia play a team from the out west. Like, I want to see those different matchups. I want to see teams being able to compete and then not just all SEC schools that have the best so That's because I love college football that much. Uh, But I won't be mad if Georgia's there every
0: year, uh, though. Well, Terrence, as we said before, we are so happy about your enshrinement of the Georgia uh, High School Football Hall of Fame. It is truly a great honor, and it is certainly a deserving one there, too. And, boy, a lot of great names on that list, and your career stands up right there against anyone. So congratulations there on that. Make sure you show that uh, status off to all those Milton players that you're coaching up right now. Let them know that they're – that they're dealing with somebody that's got some credentials in his own right. And I know that you'll certainly do that and we'll look forward to talking to you here very soon, okay?
1: Thank you. I also want to say too, Tequila and I and everyone knows we're from Washington County. so I want to give a shout out to the Dairy Lane. Everyone out there listening to, the Dairy Lane is the spot in Sandersville and that's what we're known for, not just football but if you drop Riding up to the Georgia Florida game, everybody knows about Dairy Lane, the best eating spot in Middle Georgia.
0: Let me tell you something. There's nothing better than like a, <laughs> what do you call it, like the Dairy Lane in your town? In my town, it's called something else. Yeah. Like that's that place you go get the fries, the burger, the hot dog, the milkshake. Like that's as good as it gets when it comes to some good eating right there. We had the Dairy Mart across my high school when I was <laughs> growing up, and it's kind of, I'm assuming, kind of the same type of thing going on there. Best French fries to this day I've, I've ever had. The best French fries I've ever had to this day came from the dairy mart right there in my hometown across my high school so I'm sure the dairy lane was bringing something pretty similar to the table there
1: most definitely that's the best spot and everyone who knows anything about Washington they have to stop through dairy lane once they go into up to Athens
0: hey good stuff uh Terrence uh, congratulations we'll talk to you soon thank you take a look around the rest of the league this is sec through so this is like really amazing and i don't quite understand this necessarily but it is sort of true that seemingly every one of these small towns kind of has a version of this like we had dairy martin that's not called dairy martin my town anymore but that's or like my hometown but that's what it used to be called and you had Derry lane you drive up towards like the north Georgia mountains you see this same type of thing where and if you're not from here, or if you don't really know what I'm talking about, it's almost like sort of like a localized version of like a Dairy Queen, like you know, burgers, fries, dogs, shakes, but like homespun feel to it. And I said before, like you get some really good like crinkle cut fries, like I'm talking about deep fried, deep fried, uh, like as deeply fried as they can be, uh, salted to just the nth degree uh Like, I've not been to the Dairy Lane, but I feel like I've been to, you know, a version of that before, and I'd be more than happy. I'd be more than happy to do that for lunch right now. And uh, certainly uh, very happy uh, for that. And just, you know, good memories of growing up. It, it's just kind of funny. This is why we all love high school football, at least a lot of us do, is that, you know, these small towns, these small counties, you know, Middle Georgia, North Georgia, where I grew up, South Georgia, where some of y'all grew up. They all have some of these kind of cool commonalities right there was a spot everybody kind of hung out everybody kind of snuck over after school or in some cases even during school um uh you know you kind of just no matter how big the state is in some respects it's really big north end to the south end it's a long drive but a lot of these small towns still kind of take on some of those same commonalities which is i I just think really really cool something else that terrence brought up real quickly i want to address then we're going to move on to our sec through Uh, and crews run the sec courtesy of royal caribbean um i I think that terrence brings up an interesting point that you have two potential thoughts when you look at the future of college football and how the recruiting rankings could slightly become more balanced in the future you have the thought of what's good for georgia on a show like this we obviously pay close attention to that and you also have the thought of what's good for college football so if there is more parity in the recruiting rankings would that be good for college football almost certainly right i mean I think the most common complaint that we hear from kind of people outside the bubble of Dog Nation, just sort of the nationally minded college football fan, somebody who lives somewhere else, is that the same teams in the playoff every year. Same teams are dominating recruiting every year. Same teams populate the most NFL draft picks every year. And that lack of parity, I think, has hurt the popularity of the sport in, in some places. There are lots of places in the country, unfortunately, rightly so that don't believe they have any real shot of competing for a championship so therefore it's just natural over the course of time you would just sort of begin to tune out a little bit and there are large pockets of this country that have kind of tuned out on college football because they're not really competing anyway so if NIL gave you a chance to to level that playing field a little bit would that be better it almost certainly would however here's what's not obvious to me is how much nil is going to consistently do that like connor riley when he's on the show uh earlier this week brought up a pretty good point like if you look at tex a&m right now the team that dominated recruiting last season and dominated the recruiting headlines they don't have a ton of commits currently for their 2023 class now maybe they have a late flurry and they get a lot of those but the big nil team from 2022 thus far does not seem like the big nil team for 2023 that seems more like miami or it seems more like texas it almost kind of reminds me of this If you're a baseball fan, you remember early nineties when Brady Anderson first broke out with the Baltimore Orioles and had this like crazy season out of nowhere. He hit 50 home runs after not really coming close to that in a year prior to that in his career. And those of us who were maybe a little naive about steroids and things like that were were sort of forced to say, wow, this is a little bit weird. (laughs) This kind of came out of nowhere. And some of the stuff that kind of comes out of nowhere when it's chemically aided turns out to not be very sustainable. A&M in the 2023 class is going to be interesting to watch here in terms of, okay, what you did a year ago, certainly almost for sure NIL aided, even if the actual money figures are exaggerated compared to what they actually are. We know money was a clear factor there. But can you raise that same money and come back and do it again in future year? Or was your number one class just a Brady Anderson style year where you sort of popped out of nowhere and found that level of success unsustainable? And Miami in 2024 could be the same kind of question. Texas in 2024 could be the same kind of question where matching the big year becomes difficult to do. And so from that standpoint, then maybe NIL doesn't level the playing field for recruiting as much as it has the potential to. But it's clearly one of those things that folks are watching. And as Terrence Edwards says, even if you don't love all the changes that are taking place, if that change does bring more teams in the conversation of possible contenders, then Maybe in some respect, it's good for the sport overall, even if it's not quite as good for Georgia. So now that the music has run out, let's do our SEC through. cruise on the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. I'll just simply tell you, as you know, this is a great time to be on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. And as you know, I've got my own Royal Caribbean cruise coming up again early 2023 There is some chatter, though, about maybe sneaking for a couple of days in December. I can't tell you all about that now, but I'm hopeful there's a chance that maybe we could find a way to sneak off on a uh, quick Royal Caribbean cruise come December, maybe. Certainly, though, uh, looking ahead to uh, February, kind of when all the hay is in the barn for the season and signing day is done, and when you're kind of really kind of taking that time to catch your breath and relax, thinking you might be back on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. For me, wonder of the seas, the largest cruise ship in the world. Can't wait to be aboard that and can't wait to help you get your own Royal Caribbean cruise vacation going here, there as well. In fact, our friends, at the Cruise and vacation authority can do that for you. TCAVA.com. That's the website, TCAVA.com. You can use that and, or you can give them a call 770-952-8300. That's 770-952-8300. They'll get you booked up and get you ready to go because you kind of need that help. Your best experience is going to come from being aided by an expert. And I'm happy to tell all i know but the friends of the, my friends at the cruise and vacation authority can give you even more information than that so use a great travel agent to book a great royal caribbean cruise vacation our friends at the cruise and vacation authority will do a great job with you on all of that all right let's go through some headlines here cruising around the sec courtesy of royal caribbean so deon sanders and nick saban have gotten back together to film a new aflac commercial and there's a video they've shared on social media that kind of shows them putting to bed their beef yeah there you see them smiling and happy in their uh, new promo for Aflac there 24-7 sports sharing that for those of you watching on video and I have to say this I think that the whole like Saban rant about NIL I think this ends up being a little bit of a lost opportunity for Deion Sanders I think he could have leveraged this to his benefit more than he did if you're a coach at a You know, FCS level program, whether that be an HBCU or just another kind of FCS program. The fact of the matter is, you need every piece of attention you can get. Any type of like PR you can do for your program, you need it because at the FCS level, you just don't get that quite as much. It's one of the things that Deion Sanders has done very well at uh, Jackson State, whether it be through his relationship with Barstool or just through the fact that he's one of the most famous people in our country, Dion has gotten way more attention uh, on Jackson State's program. They draw a lot more fans. There's a lot more television attention to the uh, to the HBCU conferences. There's just a lot more of that than it used to be. This is something that Dion just sort of seems to naturally do well. But in the case of the NIL dust-up, when Saban accused Jimbo Fisher of buying his entire class, and when he accused Deion Sanders of paying millions to Travis Hunter, The uh, the five star signee from out of uh, Colin Seal here in uh, the Atlanta area, Dion I think kind of dropped the ball. Whereas like Dion came out on social media and was like, "Hey, I'm gonna have a big response to this." but by, but by waiting to make his big response, he opened the door for Jimbo Fisher to step in there. And Jimbo had the huge response and Jimbo kind of owned that new cycle. And really anything that Dion was going to do after the fact was going to get completely ignored because of the fact that Jimbo had such a scorched earth response to what Saban had done. So, you know, not a huge deal necessarily, but now that they're kind of, sort of squashing their beef filming another Af- aflac commercial it is a little bit of an example of for guy and dion who seems to know how to f- cultivate attention as well as anyone when he was a player uh, when he was a two sport player now that he's a coach in this particular case i don't think he actually got enough of the new cycle to his benefit as maybe otherwise could and now the opportunity to do that seems to be over now that they are sort of filming their aflac commercial and sort of uh coming back together and making friends again Maybe a lost the opportunity for Dion there a little bit on that. I saw where Neil Brown, the West Virginia coach, speaking in SEC media days, had some very nice things to say about former Georgia quarterback uh, JT Daniels. And I'd say, for the most part, since JT transferred to Morgantown, it's been pretty quiet. And uh, by the way, uh, good job by our uh, producer, Michael Carvel, has gotten some JT Daniels stuff with some West Virginia background here. That's a. a uh yeah so uh that's well done there that's kind of like when you're a kid you get the baseball uh car the player who got uh, traded and you sort of airbrushed the new uniform on him that's a little bit of what that photoshop work is there with jt speaking with uh some uh, west virginia players there in the background kind of a creative photoshop there good job by our producer michael Carval. uh but neil brown was talking about how you know jt is going to have to win the job there at West Virginia. Praised him for being, you know, maybe the smartest quarterback they've had, you know, being the smartest person in West Virginia and always the, you know, the. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I shouldn't even say that. Uh, but the point is, is, Neil Brown said some really good things about JT Downs yesterday. And, um, it's kind of interesting it's just been pretty quiet on the Daniels front since going up there to Morgantown but you certainly saw JT be a pretty hot topic when Neil Brown met with folks there at Big 12 Media Days and uh the fun thing for JT is going to be like right there at the beginning of the season I forget if it's week one or week two but it's like right there at the beginning of the season uh, you get the backyard brawl taking place again between West Virginia and Pitt and It's going to be JT for West Virginia against Keaton Slovis now, the quarterback there for Pitt. Also, also obviously, another uh, USC quarterback who actually probably beat JT out for the job, one of the things that led JT to transfer to Georgia. But a great quarterback matchup between two former USC guys now in new places, the renewing of a great rivalry between uh, Pitt and uh, West Virginia. That's actually a really, really fun early season game, and I'm, like anybody else, very curious to see how JT does, and really I hope he does well there for the Mountaineers. I'll also say this. And this is like a total aside, and we're super late. I probably shouldn't even get into this. I saw some West Virginia West Virginia fans talking on social media the other day. They're making a really interesting point. That for West Virginia, the kind of game it plays week, whatever, early in the season against Pitt, like those are the real rivals that West Virginia has, according to Mountaineers fans themselves who've been talking about this. That after, I think, 10 years of being in the Big 12, that West Virginia actually doesn't have much of a presence in that conference. It doesn't really have much in the way of a rivalry whatsoever in the Big 12. That the West Virginia rivalries are teams like Pitt, or maybe like a Virginia Tech, or in some cases like a Penn State, or maybe if you really want to reach and stretch here, maybe a little bit of a Marshall. But it's the teams geographically close to West Virginia that Mountaineers fans actually care about, would like to play more, and hope to beat when they do play that the Big 12 is kind of like a business arrangement, but very little more than that. That's kind of an interesting aside to consider as we'll get a chance to see JT early in the year against a pit team that Mountaineer fans hate and with a quarterback that himself also used to be at USC. So maybe keep that in mind. Speaking of Big 12 media days, uh, you had a couple of uh, outspoken moments. Mike Gundy kind of talking about uh, the future of Bedlam and how... um, You know, kind of Oklahoma has sort of moved on, very critical of the Sooners there on that, kind of, you know, making this be about money. And I think that Gundy speaks on behalf of, you know, a lot of people there on this. I mean, obviously, Gundy's also benefited from the presence of money in college football because he makes a lot of money because of that. But, you know, probably not a huge surprise. A guy like Mike is, you know, pretty upset about the, you know, sort of disillusion of a rivalry that's mattered so much there in that state simply because Oklahoma found staying in the Big 12 untenable. That's probably not... Uh, you know, all that big of a surprise. You also have the new commissioner, uh, Yormark, uh, who kind of kind of comes in to the Big 12. He's not officially the commissioner yet, but he was there walking around, met with some reporters, and he talked there about the possible exit for Oklahoma and Texas out of the Big 12 to join the SEC maybe by 2024. Obviously, he's open to doing that. I think it's going to cost both those programs to buy their way out. And to me, it's not obvious that they would benefit from being in the SEC sooner because it's not like the TV money is going to go up quicker because they joined the SEC sooner. At least I don't believe that it would. So right now you've got a very weird situation. You've got a couple of teams really in limbo. Texas and Oklahoma still in the Big 12, but only just barely. Not quite yet in the SEC. And to make things maybe slightly more interesting – I mean, I think that both these teams, Texas and Oklahoma, ought to be a part of the playoff discussion, at least for right now. Maybe for me, more so Oklahoma than Texas. Other folks may see the opposite of that being true. But I got to tell you, I think with Dylan Gabriel at quarterback with a little bit tougher mentality being instilled by Brent Venables, I could see Oklahoma making the playoff this year. It's kind of a lame duck Big 12 team. I could see that. Some people may make the case for Texas. I won't do that. But the case of Oklahoma as kind of a playing out the string in the Big 12, this could still be a pretty big year for the Sooners, at least as far as I'm concerned there on that. And then finally, I'll mention this just very quickly. Steve Spurrier, you know, no stranger to microphones, no stranger being interviewed, uh, has shown up in the media this week, kind of touting the possibility that Clemson may one day join the SEC simply because it seems to be a pretty big cultural fit with what the SEC already has. And maybe that's the case. You know, I think the one thing you gotta be careful of here is, is what seems obvious to our eyes is maybe a little less obvious when you start sort of digging into some of the financial statements about this and unfortunately paying attention to what the boardroom cares about what the suits care about has become such a hot topic here in college football maybe more so than most of us would kind of like we'd we'd rather keep things focused on where things are going on the field on the field it's been very good for clemson they've won two national championships here in the playoff era they've been in the playoff every you know year but one since 2015 so clearly on the field clemson's about as big as it gets but I saw the other day where like the Forbes list of like the top 25 most viable programs in college football, You know, Clemson barely made the top 25 on that list. Now, I don't really know fully how that list is tabulated, nor do I know that list matters very much. But it's at least an indication that in terms of the kind of business that it does compared to the on-field perception that it has, there's a little bit of a chasm for Clemson. Based on on-field results, they are kind of in the same conversation of, the big programs in sports that could be a candidate for sort of conference expansion. Way better on the field than the likes of uh, Oklahoma and Texas, and certainly USC and UCLA, the power teams that have moved here recently. But in the boardroom, on the Excel spreadsheet and the cash register, those other programs just seem to matter a whole lot more. It's one of the grossest things about college football. That there's a little bit of a disconnect between what happens in the field and what happens with the bean counters, and Clemson seems to do a lot better on the field than it does on the financial statement. And something to kind of consider as you think about if the sec ever does expand something that it doesn't appear that it's looking to do anytime soon we'll make that cruising around the sec courtesy of royal caribbean and as we say goodbye to you here today a little bit different kind of golden shoe for us today i do want to honor more of the georgia guys that have made the georgia high school football hall of fame and by georgia guys i mean guys who played at uga um and it's a big list 12, 13 guys uh, from Georgia, UGA, on the first list of the Georgia High School Football Hall of Fame. Obviously, Terrence Edwards, one of those. We talked earlier about that with him. That's such a great thing to be able to see. But you've also got a guy like Pat Dye, who coached at Auburn, but obviously played at Georgia. He makes the first class of the Georgia High School Football Hall of Fame. Andre Hastings getting honored for his time there at Morrow High School. That's a great thing to see. Garrison Hurst, who dominated Lincoln County. He makes the Georgia High School Football Hall of Fame. Bob McWhorter, Uh, David Pollack, uh, so many great former Georgia guys here making this list. Herschel Walker, the only unanimous selection, mentioned on every single ballot. What a cool honor for him. So many more there as well. We'll talk more about this in the days to come. Getting ready for that October enshrinement, the induction ceremony to take place. I'm really looking forward to being a part of that. What a great honor that is for me and everybody else involved. And we'll congratulate those guys here today. Uh, As far as the lousy, stinking gators, not many of them on the list. 4,935 days since they have won a national championship. And our gator-hater countdown, 107 days from now. Dogs back in Jacksville getting another win against the Florida Gators. And we will talk to you tomorrow. Dog Nation Daily presented by Meriwether and Tharp. And on the podcast, I'm now for the R.S. Andrews podcast, Cool Down, the one you turn to for your air conditioning, heating, plumbing, and electric needs. They show up on time they do the work that's promised, the price that's promised. You can trust R.S. Andrews on all of that for you. Some sad news here to begin our cool down. Then we'll take some comments as per usual after that. But um, uh, Michael Carvell wrote about this at DogNation.com. And I guess the story originally appears as in the Sacramento Bee uh, newspaper out in Central California that uh, Oregon tight end Spencer Webb, who was expected to be a starter for this upcoming season, his uh, fifth-year junior, 22 years old but he was killed in a diving accident uh near the oregon campus apparently he hit his head on rocks while while diving triangle lakes what it's called in lane county near eugene this is terribly sad news i I don't know the player particularly well so it's uh, you know um it's not a player that i'm all that familiar with but the story is uh just tragic and, and incredibly awful awful so Uh, Oregon, obviously, in its preseason prep to get ready for Georgia. We talked about the Ducks in the show today, and this news kind of goes along with that, and it is not good news. Uh, So, so sorry for the entire Oregon family on the loss of life for one of their players, Spencer Webb, here, and um, just very, very sad. So, wanted to make sure we passed that along. Uh, And kind of an awkward transition to our more normal content, but a funny comment from Silver Britches in our Dog Nation comment section on the – Post we had for yesterday's podcast, or the one that I posted for yesterday, I was Kirby Smart holding the uh, uh, national championship, the Crystal coaches Trophy version of the national championship. And under every picture at dognation.com, there's a little bit of a caption, a description of the picture, just kind of a sort of a traditional media thing to do. And what Silver Bridges writes is, Y'all got the, the description of the picture and Kirby Smart all wrong. That wasn't taken during the trophy celebration in Athens. He was taking an Alabama spring game earlier this year. Yeah, he was walking around the field showing off all the Bama fans and players. I heard Nick Saban was mad as a hornet, which, by the way, is one of those great phrases I grew up with. Uh, But King Kirby don't care. He says, go dogs!" And obviously Silver Bridges is joking on that. But it is nice to know, man, in a time in which Georgia fans have waited for a long time to kind of get back at Alabama for all the bragging rights it had for a good number of years that for this particular year, those bragging rights belong to the dogs. Maybe even more in the future there, too. But for now, the dogs on top of the college football world and uh, funny stuff there from Silver Britches as a way of celebrating that. We hope you all have a great day today. Thank you for being here for our R.S. Andrews podcast, Cool Down, and we'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow for Dog Nation Daily, presented by Meriwether and Tharp. We'll talk to you then.